0: Scripture reading today comes from Matthew 5, 1 through 12. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord.
1: uh, highlight of my year when I do get to bring the Word of God to the people of God on Sunday morning It's uh, one of the greatest joys that I have maybe uh, four or five times a year. I get to do this and, um, and really spend time studying a particular passage and pouring over it. blessing to come talk to you. I have realized lately that if I am ever going to, uh, to have slides basically of all of my scripture verses, I'm going to have to radically change the way I prepare for sermons. So there are no slides today for, uh, for each of the, the scripture verses. I usually kind of take a, a dragnet approach at first and gather, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of, uh, of different passages from different parts of the Bible and kind of pick out Saturday night, which ones I actually want here, and of course, it's too late to have slides prepared by then. But, um, all that to say, glad to be here, and uh, please follow along in your in your own copies of God's Word when we get the various, um, various scriptures that we'll be talking about. Let me go ahead and open in prayer real quick, Lord. Thank you uh, for your Word, where it says itself that. Grass withers and flowers fade, but the Lord appears forever. Lord, I thank you that you've given that to us, and we have it. prayer pray that you would be um, in it this morning to bless it, bless our hearts as we receive your word through your Spirit. In Jesus name. So, Matthew, uh, well, I'm going to be starting this morning a series on the Sermon on the Mount, and hopefully. The, other, the next time I get to preach again, I'll be continuing on that series through the rest of the Beatitudes. I want John to read all, uh, all of the Beatitudes, first thing, first, as well as the, the verses on either side of them a little bit, just to give kind of context. But we're just going to be focusing in, honing in on that very first Beatitude, chapter 3, I'm sorry, verse 3 of chapter 5 this morning, Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The reason I want to do this is because I really think that the entire passage of chapters 5 through 7 depend on this one verse. This is the introduction. This is the lens, I think, through which we are meant to see chapters 5 through 7. I could be wrong about that, but I believe that it, it really does um, affect the way you view Scripture. and It affects the way you view Christ. It affects the way you view your own spirituality and where you put all of your hope. So I wanted to camp out on that verse, verse 3, this morning. All of chapters uh, 5 through 7 are the Sermon on the Mount. It's the first of Jesus' five great discourses in the Gospel of Matthew. He has five kind of sermons. Some of them take a little bit of a different shape, but this is the very first one, and it uh, it's three full chapters that make up a single sermon. But Matthew doesn't go right into the preaching of the Word. He doesn't start his book that way. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wants to, uh, to establish first that Christ is the coming King. That's the, that's the foundational principle. Christ is the coming king, and his kingdom is here. It's among us. He's from the line of David. He rules on David's throne. He rules over the children of Abraham, his own brothers and sisters, as we find in the genealogy. Matthew is the one who reports the coming of the Magi. These, uh, these dignitaries from foreign lands bring tribute to the new king, coming a long way to do so. And not dignitaries. The infant king is then forced to flee into exile, as kings throughout history often happen, to Egypt. And in doing so, he's reliving the experience of his people. He's reliving the the uh, their slavery in Egypt or their time in Egypt when um, when they were slaves before Moses delivered them. He's following that. So that all that righteousness could be fulfilled He could fulfill being His people as their king Then he comes out of uh, Egypt And Matthew fast forwards to the ministry Of John the Baptist where Jesus again Follows the path of his people as, uh, as he went down into the water And came up and then out into the wilderness To be tempted And tried In the wilderness As they were Only he succeeded He succeeded where they failed, and he succeeded where even Moses, the great lawgiver, had not completely succeeded. But John the Baptist, as it's talking about him, is more than just a symbol. It's more than just a stop on the way of, uh, of Jesus' story. John the Baptist was a preacher. He came preaching a sermon, and we get one brief synopsis of it, and then another place is a little bit more expounded upon. But he said this. He said, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." And this is important because after John is thrown into prison, Jesus takes on that same message and he expands that same ministry that John had. up in my line here. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He says the exact same words when he starts his message. Now Matthew is a is a great communicator, and so one of the things that he does is he introduces a theme, and then he expounds upon that theme. So in chapter four, he says Jesus went around preaching and healing, talks about it a little bit, and then he gives five through seven, one long sermon, and then um, in chapter six, he starts talking about specific episodes of Jesus' healing. So here's the king, um, who is a preacher, and a healer. Here is his sermon. Here is him healing. Come see this great king. Now, most of the people would not have expected this. They didn't expect Jesus to come as a reigning rabbi, they didn't expect the Messiah to come as a teacher and a preacher. Um, they may have expected some healing if they knew their Bibles, but those who did expect the Messiah expected him to come at the head of an army drive out the occupiers, the Romans, and reestablish David's kingdom physically on earth, but that's not what Jesus did. Those people were in for shock, and they saw what Jesus was all about, especially um, in chapter 5, but if they stayed to listen, um, they were in for some more shocks, because what Jesus says is completely counterintuitive. And it runs contrary to the way everybody had been in all of their various religious groups. There are four or five main But the way everybody had been interpreting the Old Testament and interpreting the law, what Jesus comes and says is contrary to that. And it's shocking. He speaks as one who has authority, as it says, in the end of the, uh, of the Sermon on the Mount. But he starts off by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now the first shock is that Jesus didn't start off by telling people what to do. That was not primarily his message. That was not the, the lens through which he wanted them to see everything else. He had already called on them to repent, and that's something to do. You turn from your sins you and turn toward God. And they had, his disciples had. Side note, he's preaching this specifically to his disciples. It says his disciples came to him and he taught them. But then the crowds are also around. So when seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. So the crowds are there, but he's specifically speaking to his disciples here. The people who have um, left their fishing nets, left their jobs to come follow him. And he had already called them. And they were already his. They had already left um, what they had to come and follow him. They were believers. They were united in Christ at that point. So he's speaking to his disciples up on the mountain. And he starts by telling them not what they should do, and not necessarily even what they should be. He starts by telling them who they are. Who they are. They are the poor of the Spirit. They're the, they have been made aware of the approach of the heavenly kingdom, and they have come to realize their own spiritual poverty in light of that kingdom. You may say, well, you know, disciples didn't, if you know the stories, they didn't really always exemplify that, right? They weren't, they weren't always those who um, were resting and trusting in Christ's goodness alone a lot of times they were, they were defending their own prerogatives and their own, uh, their own spiritual capital. But to come to Christ, you have to admit your spiritual poverty. And so they were characterized as people who were poor in spirit. They had no hope of bargaining power with God. That's what it means to be poor in the spirit. They were spiritually speaking, they were bankrupt. And they had left their their worldly possessions to follow Christ and were trusting in his overwhelming worth. And so it is with everyone who's in Christ. Now there are a couple different Greek words that are used in the New Testament to describe someone who's poor. Um, This says, blessed are the poor in spirit. One of the terms is used in in Luke to describe the widow who gave out of what little she had. She gave her, she gave to the ministry, to the work in the temple, and um, it describes someone who who has very little, someone who uh, does not have a lot, and she's called poor, but there's a different word that's used here. It's not that same word. Here, the word that's used is for people who have nothing, nothing. Not like the widow, who had very little and had a little to give, but had nothing. Perhaps a better translation would be blessed are the destitute in spirit. It is the beggar who shrinks away. Anything that comes into his hand immediately goes back out just to provide for the means of his own survival and so he is left with nothing, nothing to offer. He doesn't often even have clothing those who are pronounced poor or who are pronounced blessed in this passage are not the spiritual equivalent of the working class. They're not the spiritual equivalent of pensioners or welfare state or whatever it is. They are the possessionless. And in that particular society, they were often despised. But Jesus is not talking specifically to the physically poor here. He's not talking to about... Um, someone who's given up all their earthly goods to follow Christ, and hoping to, especially someone who, in, hope in doing that, would hope to, uh, to gain spiritual reward, what he's talking about is the spiritually poor, those who recognize their spiritual poverty. If Jesus' audience knew their Bibles at the time, they may have thought of uh, Psalm 34, verse 6, where it says this poor man cried and the we Lord hurt him and saved him out of all of his troubles. David, in that psalm, is realizing that he has nothing to offer God, but he needs God to come to him. And so he's poor in spirit. Jesus hears may they have also thought of Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. Jesus had actually recently quoted these verses when he was preaching in the synagogue. We can turn and look at what he uh, what he had said there in Luke 4, 18. So we're going to start Luke four eighteen says this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel of To the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And in Isaiah, the passage goes on to say, comfort for all who mourn. So Jesus is probably thinking about this passage, or at least referencing this passage in the Sermon on the Mount, because he goes straight on to. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. But these are the spiritually poor who need the gospel, who need good news, and have nothing um, apart from that. Perhaps the best description of what it means to be poor in spirit is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, in Luke, also in Luke, Luke 18, 9, and 14. You can flip over there. I'm sorry, nine through four. Luke 18 says this. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went in, up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself: God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. He was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he was a sinner, particularly bad one. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. That Pharisee realized that he had no bargaining power with God. He was coming in, and he had nothing to offer. That was it. All he had It's amazing, uh, I wanted to go down through these, but I won't for the sake of time, how many characters in the Bible are described as coming to this place, this realization over and over and over again, that they had nothing spiritually to offer in and of themselves to God. It's a place where all the things that they valued and strove for have to dust. In Philippians 3, Paul goes down the long list of things he had formerly valued. All the things that he thought gave him spiritual wealth and standing before God. He was part of God's people. He had observed all the ceremonies. He had followed the law. He had kept the rules. He was part of the right crowd, a member of the informal spiritual club. He was very well connected in the spiritual community of which he was a part he had fought the people he had believed to be the enemies of the kingdom of God, only later to find out that he was fighting the king himself. But in the final analysis, he realized that all of these things he had thought gave him spiritual clout and value were a loss. He says in Philippians 3, they were less than nothing. They were trash to be hauled off compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ my Lord. So he gave up all of his perceived wealth, all of his perceived spiritual accomplishments, and became poor in spirit. Others, like the people in the churches in uh, Corinth, mentioned in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and then in Pergamum, Thyatira, mentioned in, in the book of Revelation, they had something else to give up. They had to give up what they thought was their right to break the law. There were people within those churches, and it's mentioned in several different places, that they kind of felt like, you know, now I have spiritual capital, now that I'm a believer, and so I have the right to break the law. They thought they were in a place of spiritual wealth such that they could commit sexual immorality and not even worry about it, as if it didn't matter. Christ responds to that in the book of Revelation, king himself, Jesus Christ, the author of the Beatitudes, this same king warns the church at Pergamum that he is about to go and make war. That's a scary place to be. The king of the universe is about to declare war on you. The same mouth that spoke all things into existence is about to speak against you, Pergamum. Are people there? All because you thought you had the spiritual capital to disobey his word. Spiritual right to do that. Being poor in spirit means that we do not have the right to disobey. We have not earned it. We have not been given it. We do not have the right to think ourselves secure with God because of our own efforts or without our own holiness. Our only option is to admit our own spiritual poverty go to God on our knees, begging His grace given through the blood of Christ, and then seek to follow Him all of our lives. Is the only response. Last night, I was sitting around the dinner table um, with my family, and I was kind of um, crowdsourcing illustrations for this uh, and talking through it with them, but I was going down through all of the different times in in literature and in movies that we could think of where somebody thought they had something of great value and of worth that they could bargain with or that they could use as leverage or something like that and then it turned out to be nothing. How often does that happen in stories? I I, I thought of a bunch of examples from the movie The Coneheads, if any of you remember that, to Moana, in the wardrobe, I think has got that one. Um, there always comes a time in these episodes where the viewer or the, the consumer of the story, or whatever, those of us who are following the story, realize that one of the characters has been duped. It gives you a tremendous um, sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach to watch someone think they have something of great value. And then realize that they're deceived. The best one I think that, that we could think of, actually I hadn't thought of this one, was Pride and Prejudice. The reader in that story watches Lydia fall head over heels for Wickham, who's a scoundrel. If you, hadn't, if you don't know the story, watch it or read it, it's great. She runs off and marries him and then gloats as if she had achieved some great thing by getting married before her sisters. Uh, she doesn't realize that she has doomed herself to a life of being bound to a worthless man. She thinks she is marriage rich. And, she, and that she has gained great freedom. In actuality, she has become a slave to her new situation. Her two oldest sisters don't have many marriage prospects, which is very important to them, especially at the time. They're poor in marriage they're actually the ones who will inherit vast estates. Theirs is the kingdom of Emperor. So what does it mean then to be blessed? What could, it possibly, what could possibly be worth getting up all of the things that we are tempted to believe give us spiritual value or temporal pleasure? Now, this is kind of confusing because the word bless in English has many different meanings. English, it actually has the same root word as the word blood. That just goes to show how confusing language can make things. Sometimes um, has nothing to do with blood here. In Hebrew, it's not much better. I honestly admit that I, I don't really understand the Old Testament um, concept of blessing. How could Esau steal a blessing or how Isaac steal a blessing from Esau, that was meant for Esau, from Jacob it's something that can be stolen, and what is it? I, I honestly don't know. It does get a little bit clearer, though, in the New Testament, um, with, uh, with Jesus, because the, uh, the Greek words are a little more straightforward. Um, one of them simply uh, is the same root word that we have for eulogize, but it just means to speak well of, and it's almost like a type of praise, um we bless God in the sense that we speak well of him. And he, when he sees us in Christ, blesses us. He speaks well of us as we are in Christ. The other word is a word that's used here. It's makarios. It simply means happiness. Happy are the poor in spirit. Now, it's not so much a feeling of glee or pleasure, but it is being in a happy situation. Now, how earth could that be? How can someone be happy um, about mourning and poverty and meekness and persecution as all of these beatitudes start out with? Was Jesus blessed when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane? Or was Paul happy when he was surviving his stonings and shipwrecks and beatings and all the rest? In a sense, I think the answer has to do with time. If Jesus had stayed in the garden, or if he had stayed on the cross, or if he had stayed in the ground, in the grave, then there would really be no sense in which we could call him blessed. And for us, if we were, if we had a death as our destiny, a, uh, an eternity of mourning. And the persecution to look forward to, and there's not really much of a sense in which we can be called blessed. blessed. But that is not the case. Hebrews 12, 2 says that Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him, looking on to something in the future. In this passage, it says that those who mourn are blessed because they will be comforted. Maybe not right now, but they will be. We should never expect happiness or blessings to be complete until Christ establishes his kingdom in its fullness in the new heavens and the new earth. But, and here's the the irony of it, because we have that fullness of happiness to look forward to, we can experience blessings here, and Christ himself certainly did. If this life is not ultimate, if it is a path and a trajectory, then we are free to suffer the loss of everything we hold dear, material possessions, spiritual clout, the passing pleasures of sin, and still find joy and peace in these moments. Turn to Mark 10, 29 through 31. I think it explains this better. Mark 10, 29-31, says this, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house, or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or farms, for my sake, and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now, in the present age houses and brothers and sisters and mothers children farms along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life but many who are first will be last and the last will be first there is great gain and blessings in this life and in the age to come, eternal life. One of those great happinesses, and there's a lot of them, I don't have time to list all of them, but one of the great happinesses, and particularly in Mark 10, is the fellowship of the body of Christ. If I give up my spiritual wealth, if I lay aside my prerogatives and my pride, I gain The people of God as my brothers and sisters and mother and father in this, in this age, in this life, and in the age to come. So I think of my brothers at New Mercies. They've given up substance abuse and drunkenness. This, that abuse of substance and that, that drunkenness had held so much promise at one time. So much promise of wealth, wealth of experience, wealth of feeling. If they could just get back to that first high, if they could just cover up the pain, if they could just escape from this drab world for a little while, what? There was nothing there. Only a spiral of meaninglessness and pain and poverty and destroyed relationships. So they're in the process of giving that up. Giving up what they cannot keep. Gain what they cannot lose, is Jim Elliott. And what have they gained? What have they gained so far? In this life, they've gained a band of brothers, they gained jobs, they've gained a church family. They repent and believe they gained Christ Himself in the age to come, eternal life. Now, for the guys at New Mercies, that's kind of a more visible process, a more apparent process. For me, being poor in spirit comes at the cost of my spiritual pride, which is significant. If I were somehow able to prove that I am better than you, or that I am better than the average Christian, or that I am better than the average sinner, that holds promise, promise of so much wealth of spirit. If I can keep my secret sins, if I can nurse my spite and my anger, and I will be able to prove myself right, be able to prove myself more competent, be able to prove myself better. If I can just win one argument, if I can just say that one key thing, what? There's nothing there. Only a spiral of meaninglessness, and that same spiral of pain and poverty and destroyed relationships. So, I'm in the process of giving, giving up. Yet, not I, but Christ in me. And what do I have to gain? You, my brothers and sisters in Christ, I have Christ to gain in this life and in the age to come. If I repent and believe, eternal life. We are all poor in spirit if we are Christ's cannot come to him unless you are poor in spirit, and so you have been blessed. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Yours is his kingdom of righteousness and goodness and justice and peace in your own life, his rule and his reign, along with the community of believers. But like the first disciples, we are constantly tempted to claw back our spiritual wealth We want to be able to compare ourselves to our brothers, to this brother or that sister and know that we are better. We are tempted to hold on to our bitterness against those who have wronged us and just wait to see what we can do against them. We want to be sure that we have standing before God himself because we have given up this or that or understood that. We want to be able to hold on to our own pet sins and our spiritual right and prerogative. So turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. Repent. Turn away from your sins and remember your own spiritual poverty. Follow Christ. Follow his example. Follow his word. Follow him in prayer. Closing, I want to read Philippians 2, uh, 5 through 11. It's probably one of my favorite passages in scripture, and based on what we're seeing here, it shows us what it means that Christ was this to the greatest extent. He was the one who was poor in spirit, and he was the one who had the kingdom of heaven. It says this, Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. For this reason also, exalted blessed, bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth that every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father Christ was forced in spirit and Christ is forever blessed and we in him also blessed. So this is part of the service where we would ordinarily turn to the sacrament, the breaking of bread, partake of Christ's body and blood and bread and wine. We don't have that opportunity this morning. It makes me a little bit sad. But as Tim comes up to pray, um, closing us out, turn your minds and hearts to the one who is represented in that bread. Look forward to next week we'll once again be able to actually